0: How do people respond to the arrival of Jesus? How are they inspired to respond? How do they greet this birth of Jesus? And when they encounter him, how are they changed? The Christmas story inspires various different responses. There's sacrificial obedience. We saw that last week in Joseph. There's joy and praise. There's surrender, thanksgiving. There's also fear. And anger, and we see that in King Herod. But there's also this pondering and reflection and treasuring in our hearts, this event that has happened. One of the things that we see over and over again is this intersection between God and people, namely people's story being drawn into the story of God. They were walking in one way, and then the story of God becoming one of us in Jesus comes to them, and changes the trajectory of their lives. And this is what God did then, but it's also what he does today. He's in the business of drawing people to himself, drawing them into his redemptive story so that they live in this new way. And Today, we're going to look at how God did it in the lives of these mysterious people called the Magi. So we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is what it says. My translation will be a little bit different than what you are going to see on the screen. This is what it says, Matthew chapter 2. If you have a Bible, it would be helpful today just to keep it open, um, or even just on your phone, keep that screen available. Now after Jesus had, was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your son Jesus. And we thank you for seasons like this that allow us to come back to the story of what you have done and are doing in our world. And so we ask that today we would hear from you and that we would respond to your invitation today, that we would feel your joy, this uh, anticipation, this, um, this desire to imitate the things that you have done in our world, that you invite us to be part of. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to suggest that the big idea is that Christmas declares that God will draw outsiders into the presence of the King of Kings, Jesus. That God's going to draw outsiders into the presence of his Son, Jesus. In this story, the story of the Magi, we, we, we get these guys. They're called wise men in the translation of the ESV I just read. In the NIV, they calls them Magi. Who are the Magi? When you think of them, what do you envision? Can anyone just throw out some thoughts, some ideas? Not just smile at me, but like words coming out of your mouth, this thing here. Yeah, wise men. Uh, um, what else? When you, what do you picture? What do you see on the banner even? That uh, Tasha highlighted. Wizards, Wizard, thank you. Yeah, Gandalf the Grey, Radagast. Uh, those are different wizards, right? Uh, pardon? Astrologist. Astrologist. That's right. Yep. Anything else? Rich. Yeah. We see three, right? We see three of them, and uh, some of us even have like names for them. We picture three guys riding camels, maybe carrying a treasure chest or bags. And here's the thing. Where do we see those things in the story? Matthew's gospel is the only one we're told about these guys. Luke's gospel doesn't give us that. John doesn't give us that. Mark doesn't. If we go by the story, we aren't even told there's three of them. Nothing in the passage tells us that. We just know that there's more than one. We don't know their names. The names that have been given to them or applied to them came much later in history, with the earliest being in the 6th century. They weren't kings either, as far as, we can, or as we're told. I'm sorry to burst your nativity scene, okay? Some of you are like, I can't even keep them in the picture now in my little decorative scene I have at home. The fact is, the Magi are mysterious, and those are things, uh, and those things are, are present in the Christmas story, this kind of mystery. So what do we know about them? Well, we know that they were wealthy enough to bring valuable gifts. Gold, frankincense was often used um, by priests in Israel's temple for worship. And myrrh was this expensive spice used for making perfume, incense, medicine, and anointing the dead. These were not cheap objects. They had access to resources. These guys also were outsiders. They weren't Jewish. They were Gentiles. uh, They—we know that they came from the east, but that's about it. We don't even know the specific uh, city they came from. East meaning east of Jerusalem. Perhaps Persia, somewhere near the Euphrates River. Euphrates River. There had been a a tribe of priests in Persia called the Magi. Perhaps uh, that's where they come from. But maybe the biggest thing we can know about them actually comes from their title, Magi. In Greek, it's uh, magos, it's magicians or astrologers, as uh, as one of you already pointed out. The magi were scholars of the sky. In the first century, astrology and astronomy were combined. uh, Astronomy is the study of movement, the movement of stars and planets, and astrology is the study of stars and planets and their movement for the directing of human life. And because of their ability to decipher the movement of the stars and their perceived ability to interpret their meaning, they often they were often thought of as wise men. Now this makes sense of the words, uh, their only words that were told in the story, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And there's some evidence that during this period in history, there was a belief among some that a kingdom would arise out of the area of Judea. But even more interesting is that in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, Balaam is this Gentile prophet or diviner. He's not part of the people of God, and he's actually initially been prophesying all these curses against Israel, and each time they keep failing. Israel actually experiences blessing, So then he comes, he says something different. He says that this star, he likens a star to a king, saying that in the future a star would come out of Israel who would rule Israel and defeat all her enemies. And what's striking, at least in the story, is it seems like we're seeing these other Gentiles, astrologers, who are seeing a star, and they're coming to look for the king of the Jews. So there's all these things going on here. It's still kind of mysterious. Now, what did Israel and the early church think of astrologers and magicians? Well, in the eyes of the people of Israel, the magi had a different reputation than just simply wise men. They were idolaters. Idolatry is a word that was talking about the spiritually cheating on God. When God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he called them to a new way to live. And he called them to always remember that he was enough for them that they didn't need to worship anyone or anything else, that their worship was to be exclusive to Him. In Egypt, where they had been slaves, there were tons of different gods that were to be worshipped, a god for fertility, for the sun, for crops. And in Egypt, there were tons of astrologers. God had set them free from all of that, from having to live under the rule of the stars and those who interpreted them in Egypt. God wanted them to seek His direction, His provision, His protection, not from these other gods, they wouldn't deliver. They couldn't, because God alone is all-sufficient. The Magi did not live like this, though. In essence, they worshipped the stars. They were people who looked at the stars and then created uh, their own interpretation and that's where they would get their direction about life and how to live and how others would live they would look at the stars and make these calculations and in their own wisdom give meaning to things god's people to god's people the magi were devoted to created things that god created but not yahweh the creator and what's worse is they would teach other people to do the same rather than look at the Creator and His ways as revealed in the Old Testament. And so this kind of conviction was present in Israel, but it actually carries into the New Testament. A couple of times we read in the book of Acts that there's these magi, or the same word, magos in Greek. We encounter this guy in Acts chapter 8 named Simon the magos, who wants to buy the power and authority that the apostles have so that he can use it for his own purposes. And they confront him. They're like, that's not how the gospel works. And then in Acts 13, we meet uh, Elemas, Bar-Jesus, who's a false prophet, and he's using magic on the island of Patmos to stop this leader named Sergius Paulus from putting his trust in Jesus. So there's these pictures we're getting where they're not always perceived in the best light, where they seem like they're almost opposed to what God might want to do. They were seen to be living opposed to the will of God. There was this deep distrust. They weren't just outsiders. They were kind of in conflict with God. And they're drawing their wisdom, their power, their influence outside of God. They're slaves to the movement of the stars, enthralled by superstition. And so that makes what God is doing in this story as we read it so amazing. The Magi are living in the spiritual darkness, and yet, with whatever little light they have, God enables them to come to His Son, Jesus. God uses these things that they're familiar with, they don't know the story of God, to make Himself known to them. And you see something similar with Jesus and His first disciples, and Peter and John, as they're fishing and he uses something they're so familiar with in their trade to draw them to himself. And we see God doing something like that with the magi, with the star. Matthew is telling us that in the birth of Jesus, God is moving in such a way that even those in conflict with him are being drawn into his transforming presence. God is drawing people who live in another part of the world To his son, Jesus, a journey's distance not unlike walking from Calgary or Edmonton all the way to Vancouver. God is drawing people into his redemptive story for a people who have no idea about this story that he has been writing. They don't know him as the main character, they're not in relationship with him, they don't really know all about him, yet he's drawing them to him. God is drawing people who seemingly have no connection to Israel. They're outsiders, and he's connecting them, making them insiders by leading them to his son, Jesus. God is drawing people who would seem to have no interest in knowing God and worshiping him, and then bringing them to Jesus, God with us, to Jesus, the image of the invisible God, to Jesus, the one who says, if you have seen me, you have seen God the Father. God is drawing people into the presence of the king of kings. And this is what we're going to be told later on in the, in the Bible. In Ephesians 2, Paul will say that Jesus has done this. In verse 13, we're told, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both. One and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then in verse 17, we're told, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This has always been God's intention. God's choosing and blessing of Israel started in one family in Abraham. And the purpose of blessing Abraham wasn't just so that Abraham could experience this blessing and have this individual relationship with him. It was so that through this family, they would grow into a nation who would be a light to other nations and bless them as they showed what God was like. His kindness, his generosity, his grace, the way that he intended for humanity to live. And other nations would witness it and see it and be like, that is beautiful. Can we have that? Can we know that God? This was always his intention that he, Israel would reveal what God is like so that others would want to know him too. And here in the first pages of Matthew's Gospel, he is saying that this good news of Jesus, that the kingdom has come in him, isn't just for the insiders. It's not just for the current people of God alone, it's for the outsiders too. It's for those who are not living in the ways of God, it's for those who are not rightly related to God too. The time has come for all the nations of the world to come to me. In Psalm 87, verse 4, God promised that there would be a day. And he says, I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and with Cush. This one was born there. These are all these foreign nations, foreign cities, they're not the cities of Israel. God says. These people here in these places will know me. And in the Magi, we see what God is doing, that he's doing this for this group, these guys, these people, the Magi. And he's declaring this, that all the nations will come to me through Jesus, that I will show love to those who were called not love, that I will call those people who were once called not my people, my people. And they will say, you're my God. Psalm 72, it has this powerful picture, or portrait, that speaks of a king of Israel one day, that the nations would come in honor, presenting gifts of gold, that they would serve him, they would bless him, and they would pray for him. And this king, we're told, he will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. And that king, Matthew wants us to know, is Jesus. For Jesus, your life is so precious that he would leave his heavenly throne and become human. That's the story that the magi are being drawn into. That's the story that we're being told, look, this this isn't just for those on the inside. It's those who don't know him yet. And so what happens when they come before this infant king? And what can we learn from their response to Jesus? Well, this is where it's going to pay to just keep your Bible open and look at a few different verses. First, when they finally find the place where Jesus was staying, they are overjoyed. Look at verse 10. Matthew chapter 2, verse 10 reads, that when they finally found this place, they rejoiced exceedingly, With great joy. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Joy. Great joy. Rejoicing exceedingly is what happens when we discover Jesus. The joy of the Lord becomes our joy. It's the joy of knowing the love of God, of knowing His love for you personally. This is a remarkable moment. These guys had lived their whole lives in another city and place... And God here in this moment, they, get, they actually have this moment where their lives are intersecting with the giver of life. In this moment, they meet God incarnate. They meet the word of God, Jesus. Everything God wanted to say to humanity in a person. And these kinds of intersections, these kinds of meetings between Jesus and humanity have been happening for 2,000 years. And he's still doing this today. And I wonder when we think of the story, if there's someone in your life who are kind of like the Magi, maybe they just seem like they're so far, like they're not rightly related to God. Maybe they're not even really interested. Maybe they're spiritual, but they're not really into Jesus. They don't know him. They don't know the story. And this story tells us that God is actively interested in those people that he's keen on drawing those people to his son and that he's willing to meet them where they are is there someone that comes to your mind a friend a coworker a family member a neighbor i want us to invite i want to invite us to hold that person in our minds now and then i want us to actually in prayer bring them before god And ask God to lead them to His Son Jesus. Would you be willing to do that with me? I need like a nod, something, a like, you with me? Okay, thank you. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we believe you know these people on our minds by name, and you love them. And you care about their life, their pain, their needs, and their purpose. And we believe you want them to know you. So that they could have this joy. That they could rejoice exceedingly with great joy at knowing Jesus. So right now we ask for you to make Jesus known to them. And we ask for you to draw them to Jesus. We ask for you to make a way for that to happen in their lives. And if you want us to do more than pray for them, we ask that you would give us wisdom and gentleness and humility. In his name, amen. The second thing that we are told is that when they enter the room where he is and they see Jesus with Mary, they fall to their knees and honor him. In Matthew 11, verse 2, verse 11, we're told, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. The long-awaited king had come, and they honored him by bowing before him. You know, when you meet someone who's great in their field, they're maybe an expert in it, or they're just, it might be a professional athlete or a scholar in a field that you are really interested in someone who's worthy of respect, honor, and praise, that there's like this weight that you feel in the room as you stand before them. That's what's happening in this moment as they come before Jesus. We never go wrong by worshiping Jesus because he is God incarnate. He's the second person of the Trinity God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons who dwell in perfect unity. And you honor and please God the Father when you recognize Jesus as his divine Son. This truth is glorious and it's mysterious, and it is what Christmas proclaims, that God has become one of us in Jesus, that God has made himself known in the person of Jesus. The third thing that we are told is that they experienced this gift of giving Jesus their treasures. The second half of verse 11 says, Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. During this Christmas season, we often think about generosity. It feels easy to think about that. We often think about uh, being generous towards our kids or our family members or significant other. The Magi are generous towards Jesus. They bring him these gifts of honor. They carry with them, carry them with, him, with themselves for great distances, taking care of them so as not to break them or lose them on their journey. And we often think of this extravagant generosity of the Magi, and we think, wow, that's remarkable. That, like, we got to do that at Christmas. That's awesome. But one of the things that I was reflecting on is that we miss the context of God's gift to humanity. Like think about one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. God gave because he so loves. God loves to give. It's his delight to give. God gives us his son, Jesus. Generosity, then, is this central characteristic of who God is. It gives him joy to give. It's not a duty. He doesn't have to. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. He delights in giving, which is why Jesus does not begrudgingly lay down his life. When he makes the Father known, he said, when you see me, you've seen the Father. He's saying, look, this generosity, this willingness to lay down my life, is I'm not doing it begrudgingly. I have the same joy in giving, same delight. He's always wanting to give because that's who he is. Paul will tell us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the audacious declaration of Christmas is that the reason we bless God is because God has come to us in King Jesus. That God has come to us. Like he that he's come to the Magi, the outsider, the sinner. He's come to all of us alike. And God has actually come and offered us a gift. He stretched out his hand, offering us the gift of Jesus. And through him, every spiritual blessing. And that sounds audacious, that God would do that for us. You, you, there's a part of you that's going to say, shouldn't it be us doing that for him? But what you're, you need to know, what you need to know is that here in the Christmas story, we're being told that we are given God Himself. That God steps off of His throne and humbles Himself and takes on the form of human, becoming a servant, laying down His life so that we could be drawn into His life. That is audacious. That should there's almost something offensive. Like what? Well, why would you? No, it needs to be the other way. No, and God says, "This is who I am. This is what I do." and it gives me joy to do it so then what could we possibly offer god himself when he gives us himself the only gift that we have it's ourselves it's ourselves it's us and that doesn't repay him it's not a repaying it's a response We give him ourselves and all that we have at our disposal. There is something about encountering Jesus that moves us to be generous like him, that changes us from thinking it's something we have to do, begrudgingly do, or I just got to be obedient, so this is what I'm going to do, to being something we want to do and enjoy doing, to being a people who actually believe, like, it really is better to give than it is to receive we imitate god when we look out at other human beings and seek to find ways to bless them do we think of god that way that he is actually looking at us and uh, and desires to bless us that wants he's finding and making a way to bless us and that when we do that we're imitating him When we we imitate God, when we look for ways to be generous and experience this gift of giving to others. In this Christmas season, you and I probably have a list of people in mind that we're going to go get gifts for. And that is awesome. Keep the list. But I want to challenge us to ask the Lord, Lord, you have my life. All that I have at my disposal is for you. Is there someone you want me to bless this month? Is there someone you have wanted to bless this month and you want to use me to do it? This month we're only on December 3rd, like we got plenty of time guys. And some of you like to wait till December 24th to finish your gift giving. You don't have to do that, but you can. But what would it look like for you to take that list and then say, Lord, is there anyone you want to add to it? And then ask him, how would you like me to? Would you help me pay attention to the needs of others this month? Actually, I'm going to invite us to do that right now. Instead of just giving you the idea, we're going to do it so the Lord would begin to Let those things percolate in your heart. So, Father, we come before you. And we thank you for the people you put in our lives. that We get to seek out different gifts for. And we desire that that list we already have, the gifts that you lead us to give them, may they be a gift in their lives, an encouragement, a blessing, something that expresses your love. But we also know, Lord, that you look out at the world and your heart is to pour out your love and your blessing upon humanity. And so we just say, Lord Jesus, is there anyone you want us to bless? Would you bring them to our mind now? And I ask, Jesus, that you would show us how. How you would want us to bless them. I pray this in your name. Amen. You know, some of us will think that the main way you're generous is money. And that, sure, it can be one way. It's not the only way. You can give someone your time. Being present with someone who needs relationship to be heard, you don't even have to tell them that that's the gift. Maybe you're, you're simply just praying for them. Gift can someone with your talents you have abilities, talents that other people don't. You might be able to give them a ride or pick up groceries, fix something for them, maybe you're great at tech and they're not and you can help them. You can give someone your treasure. Yeah, if you have it. Like money's not everything. It's not the only way to give, but it is a resource and you can use it. I know a number of you are already looking for opportunities to do this before today. It's on your heart. God sees that. It delights him to see that. Keep doing it. Keep going. We often think that this generosity really is about giving a large amount of money. And it can be that, but it's definitely more than that. And it's not measured by the amount, but by how much it actually costs us. If you make $100,000 a year, the value of $200 does not feel like much to give. To help someone, but if you make thirty thousand dollars a year, two hundred feels like a lot. it's like that parable Jesus gives us of the widow with her might. She gives all that she has, and Jesus delights in that, and it 's not a ton in comparison to what others give, but the costliness of it is what he sees it 's not about the amount, but how much it costs us. So the question is for us, does it cost us something? Jesus came to us, and it cost him his life. He gave up everything for us, and he did it out of love, the joy that was to come, and he didn't give up his life begrudgingly. He gave it with joy and love. He's able to say on the cross, an excruciating plane as he's being mocked, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing and he means it. The fourth thing we see is that after having been warned in the dream to not go back to Herod, they're returned to their country by another route. There's something about this ending to me and the Magi story that seems to match the way that the disciples of Jesus will live. In that after meeting Jesus, we walk in a different way. We take a different path. We begin to see some of this happening before this point. God meets the Magi in their broken ways and draws them to Jerusalem through the star in the sky. Yet, if they were just on their own, they would have only made it to Jerusalem. They weren't thinking of going to Bethlehem, they weren't seeking to find the king there, they didn't know to find the king there. They needed someone else to point them to Scripture and tell them that the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Scripture makes sense of Jesus. It's all about Him. And Jesus will make that explicit in Luke 24, that all of these things were pointing to Him, and He's come and fulfilled it. And God, His Spirit, is always at work, drawing people to Jesus, revealing who He really is to people. And yet one of the primary ways He does this, and consistently does it, is through Scripture. The story of God rescuing and renewing humanity. God's desire has always been that you would see that you have a part to play in this story as one of his children, as one of Jesus' disciples, and that starts by coming to him. And so that's what we're going to do in communion. Communion.